Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. This week's episode is uh, on the theme that we've been meaning to do for a while, a young readers special. And Robin is joined by both a school librarian and a children's author. But before we get to that, thanks, as always, go to our Book Shambles Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash Book Shambles is where you can go to subscribe and get extra length episodes extra length episodes that was a weird way to describe it but that's the way i've done it uh it's probably because i was going to say you get extra shows and goodies and podcasts and offers and that sort of thing but then i kind of changed what i was going to say halfway through saying it so there you go what a fantastic ad i've just given and i also want to mention that nine lessons and carols for curious people the final two shows postponed last december because of covid they are now rescheduled to April 16 and 17, that is Easter weekend. Back at King's Place, all the usual antics. Lots of guests already announced, including Lucy Green, Matt Parker, Helen Chesky, Jim Bob, Neera Chamberlain, Jess Wade, Femi and Marco, and loads more. Cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons is where you can go to get tickets for that. Or if you had tickets for the December shows, uh, they will be valid for these shows as well. The postponed ones, obviously. If you already came to one of the shows, then then you'd need to get a new ticket for these ones. Slick and professional. That is how I would describe this episode's intro. And so enough of all of that. Here's Robin. Hello. Welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles, as many of you know. Uh, Josie's not currently around at the moment, though uh, not due to some terrible falling out, but uh, just due to uh, maternity leave, and she will hopefully be back very soon. And um, today we are... Well, today is, uh, it's a schools special, really. It's about um, reading amongst... Uh, well, it, it we'll probably cover a lot of ground, I think. Uh, obviously, there's a thing called YA, though when I worked in a bookshop, it wasn't called... Called YA, it was called things like teens and stuff like that. I think the puffin teens, it may well have even been, or that, or uh, penguin tracks or teen tracks, something like that. But uh, we've got a, uh, uh, we've got two guests today. We've got Louis Stoll, who we're going to be talking to later on, um, who is the author of, amongst other things, Otherland, and uh, also um, a school librarian who we've been meaning to do this for uh, about. Um, I don't know how long now, probably 5, 10, 15 years, probably. Probably longer than Bookshambles existed itself. Uh, so, Julie Bort, let's have... Uh, so, Julie, let's start off. Th- First of all, being a librarian, yeah. it does feel like that's a calling. I mean, I find that just with yeah. the independent booksellers that I've been visiting to be a bookseller. Generally, no one goes into it for the money. And in the same oh, way, being a librarian, my friends who are librarians, generally, it's like, oh, someone's got to do it. And it turns out it's got to be me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I didn't start out in libraries, but it's kind of since being a little child, it's definitely something I wanted to do. I remember going to our local library and being allowed to go behind the counter with the little pockets and the stamping. And so we'd go every Thursday. And Louise in the library there, she'd let me go behind and help her while my mum and dad carried on looking for their books. It was so exciting. But being a school librarian in particular, I think it's because it's so fast. It's not just about books and reading. It's such a fast job. And so reactive, but there's so much joy in it. What so do you much. think? I'm I'm wondering because the, the, my first library, I suppose, technically is probably one of the Hertfordshire Mobile libraries that would come mm. to our village uh, most Fridays, I think, or certainly every other Friday. And then it was the Chorley Wood Library. And in fact, not far from you, I have tremendous fond memories of Hitchin because yeah. when I ordered the making of Doctor Who from Chorley Wood Library, it arrived from Hitchin, which I think was the central library of Hertfordshire. So for oh, some reason, Hitchin became a place where dreams were made. That was the Willy <laughs> Wonka uh, scenario uh, for, for, for libraries in my mind. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I grew, grew up in Wolverhampton. So it was we had all the little local libraries. So we had Long Knoll Library, which is around the corner from my primary school. Then we had the Village Library, which was Wentzfield Library. 
And then the big, like the queen of libraries was Wolverhampton Central Library. I don't know if you've ever been there. No, I know, what I know before. Wolverhampton best for is its excellent um, pop art collection. Yes. Which again, there's a nice link with the day that I saw you in the shop that I saw yeah. you, David's. Um, I did tell them to put up the price of a book because I, I reckon it was probably worth more. They had a Pam book, yeah. Nell Dunn's book, um, Talking to Women, uh, which includes uh, an interview with Pauline Boaty. I think it's Boaty, mm -hmm. B-O-T-Y. I might be wrong. I'm not very good on pronunciations, but she was um, really one of the only female uh, pop artists in the, in the British movement and of pop art and was kind of not really revered and is now slightly more revered and I first became aware of her work because of um Wolverhampton for its amazing yeah. art gallery Wolverhampton's there. got some amazing secret little places that people don't credit it for but the central library is just an amazing Victorian edifice in this sandstone and then you go in there's two big marble staircases sweeping round and we used to go in and on the one side is children's library through these huge wooden doors and on the other side is the adults library and that's that was like the that was the holy grail. You got to 10 and you got your special adult tickets and you can, they go across the hallway. It was just magical, absolutely magical. So, of course, I was a complete nerd and that's where I used to spend Saturdays. See, but that's a lovely thing, isn't it, which is there's a lot of areas which I think people would, their initial reaction to it would be to be kind of cynical or demeaning. Mm. And, you know, Wolverhampton is definitely, well, I've, I've, yeah. you know, I, I, I play there a lot and have a wonderful book festival there as well. Um and another one I was thinking of, have you ever been to the Harris in Preston? No. no. Again, Preston, I think, is a place where a lot of people would, you know, uh, but it has this one, it's a huge library with mm. a Foucault's pendulum in it oh, as well. Fantastic. And then a, and then it's got an art gallery right at the top, which has got bits and pieces like some quite early Francis Bacon of just some seashell or other that he sketched oh, and various kind of... Um, uh kind of quite romantic victorian images of ancient egypt and stuff like that and again oh, that's man. one of those ones where that the library is really does feel like the center and i'm sure many people now yeah. walk past it and many people may well dismiss it but as you were saying about wolverhampton as well it is an edifice it is an icon mm. yeah when you're when you're trying to make the choices because that must be very hard mm -hmm. i mean first of all for the the kids that are really into reading because for many, you know, some people are lucky, some people in, in terms of the good fortune to to grow up in a house that already has books in it, yeah. that reading is part. And for a lot of people, that's <laughs> not part of their their, their life, though. But I, I wondered for so for, for the, the kids that are, are already voracious readers, mm -hmm. where are you seeing them go now? Kind of let's go. Should, should we start at about I mean, because we were saying that that problem bit, which is the journey from children's books into the kind of mm. it's, i mean it's called ya but i think it a is. lot of young adult stuff could be read by you know any, any you know yes. don't, don't turn it down just because you're an adult and you think no, well, i'm not 14 not. anymore there's some great stuff there i do read a lot more ya than i read anything else to be honest because some of it's phenomenal um I mean, have you read will hills after the fire no that was fantastic that was up for the carnegie a couple of years ago and it was written 25 years after waco and it's about it's set in the same kind of thing it's the same kind of event and it's the psychological journey of the children who were rescued from the Waco style event and it's just absolutely phenomenal it's a wonderful piece of work but yeah it's you take it on an individual basis you take it on a student by student basis and they come in and you spend time with them if they come in wanting to find something new to read you spend time with them ask them questions find out what they like and some of them want to be challenged, some of them want to try something new, and some of them want to play the same furrow. So we kind of try to gently steer them into other dimensions. But it's, yeah, for the ones who really love reading, they'll pretty much read anything put in front of them. So who who are the favourites at the moment? Who do you who who are the the kind of I, I know that my son he really likes Robert Muchmore yeah and yeah and they, and they all like oh what's it called that was the, the the one with the the, the skeleton in the uh, Skullduggery Pleasant, Skullduggery seemed Pleasant. Like, that seems to be yeah. for about ten eleven and up they 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 yeah. seem to be going for that Skullduggery Pleasant and um, Robert Muchmore seem to be a little bit on the wane in our school at the moment but that's not to say it will stay that way it goes in waves um, Charlie Higson is always popular um, mainly um, the dead. The Dead series. They absolutely they love zombies. What can I say? They absolutely love zombies. Um, Darren Shan, that's really accessible. Um, I mean, I'm going to say boys because I work in a boys' school. It's that's really accessible for boys 
who feel like they want to read but don't know where to start and feel a bit intimidated by long books. So books like The Saga of Darren Shan, there's 12 of them, but they're all really, really short. And they're fantastic. And they're about a boy who becomes a half vampire. And it's his adventures. And they're just so much fun. So much fun. Um, for the more for the more eager readers, people like Angie Thomas with The Hate You Give and On The Come Up. Uh, Jason Reynolds is really popular. Um, yeah, I think I've mentioned to you before, Frances Harding. Mm. And she's, she creates beautiful, bizarre little worlds and they're all little one-offs. Um, and they go in and they, so for instance, a skin full of shadows is set during the English Civil War. They might never learn about the English Civil War. There might not never be time in the curriculum to spend time on that, but they read that and then they go away and they want to know more. Um, who else have we got? I mean, Colfer is a, a standard. Um, and who else? Tolkien's still standard as well. They still love Tolkien. That's interesting. Yeah, and Philip Reeve. But it, it probably is, Philip Reeve is probably helped a little bit by the fact that myself and my colleague absolutely love the Mortal Engine series. So if, if boys come in and say, I like fantasy, I want something a bit different, what can you recommend? We give them Mortal Engines because it's got humour, it's got dystopian futures, it's got sci-fi, it's got subverted gender stereotypes. It's got everything as far as we're concerned. It's fabulous. So absolutely what about... Amazing. Do you see some, I mean, are, are there those certain moments where you have, you know, someone who is, they're resistant to reading? Yeah. And then there is, and I presume it's not, it can be any, like I, I was I was chatting to, to someone the other week about, about the the Blue Bear book. I forget its name now. It's mm -hmm. a, uh, Richie, the, uh, it's not Adventure of the Blue Bear, is it? What's it though? I, I, I remember you saying, yes. Yeah. yeah. And and uh, and her child uh, has autism and just never, reading just didn't. And then for some reason this was the book this big yeah. lump of a yellow book with beautiful crazy <laughs> drawings and kind of wonderful moments of absurdism and it's just filled with incredible kind of imaginative flourishes and you mm. and you at, at times it feels like a douglas adams book and there's lots of and, and from that point onwards he couldn't stop reading it was yeah. like the, this this the, it's the just total the key. impasse yeah. and then the whole wall yeah. was gone it's just the key what I, another series of books that we often use as an in they're designed for dyslexic students, uh, the Barrington Stoke books, but they're such fabulous books. They're fabulous stories. And Tom Palmer writes a lot of books for Bar Barrington Stoke, and he's really popular. He writes, um, like he wrote, um, oh, After the War, which is about the Windermere children. Um, and he's written lots of things about football, and he's also written lots of war stories. And they're quick and easy to read. So, and because they're dyslexia friendly, they don't look as daunting on the page because the spacing is wider. The pages are slightly yellow, so it's not so harsh on your eyes. The font is easier to read. So for often for kids who are reluctant readers, it's that they're bamboozled by a whole page full of text. They look at it and there's just too much to take in. So they're really, really good. They're just the Barrington Stokes generally. And they have amazing authors. I mean, Mallory Blackman um, has got a lot of books published in Barrington Stoke, um, Melvin Burgess. Um, but yeah, it, it, again, like I said, it's a student-by-student student basis. You'd spend time with them. One of the books, I saw you you were talk to, talked about Christopher Edge a little while ago. Mm. Um, one of the books that is really popular in the library and hooks people in is The Infinite Lives of Maisie Day. Um, have you read that one or seen it? Yeah, yeah, I've read it. Yeah. It's great. He's, it's he's re really, really good at, at, at dealing with big scientific yeah. ideas, but in a, in such a humane way. And yeah. yeah, it was a beautiful book, an absolutely beautiful book. And often that's been one we've used to hook people in. What was your first really favourite book when you when you were growing up? Well, wow. let's take it in a few stages. So, what was the first book that was would go to bed with you more often than not? <laughs> It was a it was um, an illustrated book of oceanography. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, my dad used to read me this book of oceanography, and I used to read it every night. I was yeah, I was really small. I remember being about four, five, six, and learning all about oceanography. It's a beautiful book. Yeah, I think it eventually it literally fell apart. Um, and then there's Beatrix Potter books. Just they're just the the Frederick Wall and Beatrix Potters are just so exquisite and just wonderful. Um, but then, as I was a little bit older, a book that's really stayed with me. Do you remember the book tower? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Originally presented by Tom Baker, and then it Tom kind Baker, of yeah. only, only did about one, didn't he? And then someone else, one, one series. Yeah, Wincy Willis did one series as well. Um, but when Tom Baker was doing it, one of the, because I signed up to get the bookmarks and the all the bump that came. And one of the first books they talked about was The Farthest Away Mountain by Lynn Reed Banks. And that has really stayed with me. Um, that 15 year old girl called Dakin. First of all, I thought, what a great name. Um, she was 15, but she wasn't married yet. So she was already a bit of an outcast in the village, which I thought, great, I love that. She wore big boots. She wasn't delicate and girly, even better. And she had ambitions to visit the farthest away mountain, talk to gargoyles, um, see a witch and marry a prince. And eventually she got to the farthest away mountain, befriended gargoyles, met the witch. Um, but on the way, she met an enchanted frog that was locked in a house. And she got in and then she got away. Then she met the handsome prince and discovered he was far too vain and boring and she wasn't interested in him at all. Um, and did everything she had to do, defeated an evil witch. Um, and then as she was going back down the mountain, turned out the, the enchanted frog was actually a school teacher. He was the prince's school teacher and he was far more interesting, so she married him. And that was just wonderful. <laughs> Oh, that's great. That's I love that those ones that subvert, like in in the picture book mm. world. I love uh, the Stinky Cheese Man mm. and other fairly. What was it? Other other fair. I can't the fairly old tales. <clears throat> yeah, fairly old tales. That was fantastic. There, the Gingerbread yeah. Man story told us to cut an old couple that make a child out of stinky cheese but it's so stinky yeah. they don't want it and there's yeah and all the way through the book you've got chicken licking just going the sky's falling in the sky's yeah. falling in <laughs> though, though, remember, though, great i remember the first time my husband read chicken licking to our eldest son when he was a baby he, he'd never had the fairy tales read to him not certainly chicken licking but he came downstairs and said i think i've just given my son the first hard lesson of life <laughs> Yeah, Stinky Cheese Man was that was great. My eldest son was obsessed with Morris Sendak. Oh, as, as was Ivor Cutler, by the way. If oh, that's when good. I, I was just writing about this today that when when I used to go around book fairs with my dad when I was about nine or ten years old, two of the people that I would often see in these book fairs would be Michael Foot, who would uh -huh. be wandering around, obviously, you know, looking for something Byronic or whatever it might be, mm -hmm. you know, in those days when you really <coughs> knew that a politician like him would be reading and writing yeah. beautifully and brilliantly. Yeah. And then Morris Sendak, very often there in his shorts, probably cycled oh, wow. over with his, with obviously with his little hat on there. Um, and uh, and he was always looking for Morris Sendak rarities, as far as I know. <laughs> He, he's someone who writes beautifully i've got i've yes. got i think i've got most i don't know if i've got them all but they, it's i don't know how many of Ivor cutler books are in print now because i've noticed mm. that they seem to go for quite a lot of of money at the moment like you know yeah. gruts and glasgow dreamer and things like that and that has such a beautiful use of of, of language and he was such an Absolutely. interesting character i was, I was lucky yeah. to see him shortly before i think it must have been one of his last gigs that he did in london where he did that normal thing of you know uh, where they went, uh, Mr. Cutler has asked if you would uh, applaud at, I think it was something like 65% of your normal <laughs> volume. And then oh, everyone did it. really carefully. They kind of went, like, trying to do it a bit quieter. And then as he got to the harmonium, someone went, yay! And he went, that was all rather wonderful. Until it was spoiled <laughs> by the yay at the end. And, uh, and it was mainly watching a man walk back and forth between a harmonium and his notes. It was oh, very much a Beckett play of performance. Wonderful. That must have been absolutely wonderful. But yeah, some of the Sendak books are just absolutely beautiful. And the stories and the language. And there's that wonderful story of Maurice Sendak when a, a small boy wrote him a letter to say how much he loved his books. Um, and then so Maurice Sendak wrote back to him with a drawing and the little boy ate it. And he said that's you know, that, that's absolutely wonderful. I'm just thrilled. He loved it so much, he ate it. <laughs> yeah, In the Night Kitchen is such a beautiful one oh, as well. Oh, yes. And, and then the bizarre things. Weren't there American libraries that it got banned from? Because... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, we, we do lots of things about banned books. That's always a way in, actually. That's another way in we have with our boys, is if they want something to read, we go, do you want to know what books were banned? <laughs> and they love that and we do big band books displays once a year and we work with the English department and when they do about controversy in literature we always do some things around banned books with them and they absolutely love finding out books that are banned and trying to work out why and yeah that's yeah the lots of books were the, the funniest one was um, Brown Bear Brown Bear the Eric Cole book 
I think it was Eric Cole, wasn't it? He, yeah. That was banned in one place in America, but that's because they confused him with a communist author. So they, but it was banned for communism, but it was the wrong author. It was the wrong Eric Cole. My goodness. It's just, I mean, what's your favourite of the banned books when you do, when you're doing a display and you're encouraging, you know, them, them to read? What's the one where you think, now this one, this one really is, what a story to have. Uh, the one I like talking to them about, and it's not a happy thing and it's not nice, is Black Beauty. Mm. They're always stunned that Black Beauty would be banned. And it was banned in South Africa because you can't have the notion of something black be associated with beauty. Um, and also the, the fact that anything in, in China is banned if you have talking animals because you can't have human and that humans and animals equal. So Alice in Wonderland, completely gone. Winnie the Pooh, gone. Because you can't have animals and humans on, on a level footing. Wow. That's yeah. fat. And I'd, I'd not known about, about Black Beauty, I suppose. That, that's, uh, not that's really upsetting. That's a very upsetting one. What about, I mean, this is... So when people do say, oh, come on, no one leads libraries anymore, it's all on the computers and everything, mm. what's your comeback to that? We, when we have tours, um, when we have open days at school for prospective students, very, very rarely, I think we've had two parents have said this, oh, you've still got a library. Oh, isn't it all on computers now? It's more than books. First of all, you know, there are some people who still like holding a book and there are many, many people who still like holding a book. Also, it's not just about where books are kept. It's about a place to go and it's to be with your people. We, we have a proper little community going in our school library and it's from boys age from 11 up to 18 and they do mix and they do know each other and they, they form their own community. And it's really beautiful to see when you see older boys helping younger boys out. Um, so yeah, no, there, there is, You'll never get rid of books. You'll never get rid of libraries. Well, they'll try and get rid of libraries. They are trying. This is how you levelling up will never work. I might get political now. Levelling up will never work while you can't have investment in libraries because it's keeping the people down who can't afford to go out and get the, the books and the learning and everything for themselves. And also sometimes just the space. The amount of times I used to go and do homework in the library because it was just quiet. Hmm. Yeah, that sense of it, especially, you know, so many things are being cut back, which were places that could feel safer for mm. people of many generations and for younger people as well. And the library does yeah. have that 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 sense of a place where, yeah. yeah, it might not be, you know, it might be kids with troubles at home or it might be just, you know, kids who are a little bit on the outside and they're mm. not brought together by, you know, sport and things like that. Um, yeah. And that, and that actually then across the generations as well, because that's true sometimes of some of the people who might be slightly lonelier, you know, who yeah. are older people as well, who just yeah. have a place, as you said, you know. Yeah, it, it's uh, librarians. It, well, it's it's what Carl, Carl Sagan said, I think probably in Cosmos, but it might not have been. It might be when he was talking about the Library of Alexandria. And I should say, apparently, his story about um, Hypatia is, is actually historically inaccurate. But you know what? Just oh, don't worry about that. Again. Uh, the, um, but he said, you know, libraries are a mark of civilization, the ability yeah. to get. And, and I think so much of our culture pretends that actually no one wants these things anymore and they're all idiots mm. and, and there's so much geared against uh you know it's it, i think i talked about this actually when you were at the gig in cambridge i can't remember mm -hmm. if it was that night where i talked about just the the way that steve wright talked about Bauhaus on an old episode of top of the pops too which is what which yes. was basically yes, did, just yeah. mocking and oh what what unfortunately yeah. that finally stopped i don't know what this kind of song is but that anything that's a bit different anything that's mm -hmm. experimental anything which does not fit in you know so many people are spending their lives trying to make themselves into the shape that they think they are meant to be in for society and um, mm -hmm. when they can find a place where they can actually allow themselves not to you know panel beat themselves into that mm. shape but to have to be what they may well be in themselves yes yeah, this is why school libraries are so crucial and that it's absolutely criminal that there's no statutory requirement for a staff school library and, and but there is for prison libraries and who am i to say maybe there's correlation there but certainly not at primary level you would think there should be a, a requirement for a school library and at secondary there's no requirement for a school library but we're a place where people can go students can go where there's no expectation there's no data to be hit there's no 
there's no actual targets for them. They can come in and just shape themselves. One of the things we say when we do our inductions of the year sevens, um, we, we ask them the question, what books should you read? And of course, you know the answer to that. It's whatever you want. And they come up when you get all the usual Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and Harry Potter and all that kind of thing. And we just go, no, no, just read whatever you want. For example, myself and my friend, we don't like Charles Dickens. So we don't read Charles Dickens. We find him silly. So we don't read him. Um, and so we tell them, just read what you want. And then we go on to tell them, and this makes them kind of gasp. If you start reading a book and you're really not enjoying it, don't carry on. Just put it down. We're not going to tell you off. We're going to go, well, you gave it a go. We'll find you something else. You wouldn't carry on eating a sandwich that you're not enjoying. So why would you carry on reading a book you're not enjoying? Actually, I did finish a sandwich the other day that I really didn't enjoy at all. (laughs) But it is interesting. That is one of... I had never realised just how ingrained that is in people as one of the great societal rules because I recently did a thing which was about... People often ask me, how do you read so much? How do you read so much? And I said, well... I do read the whole if I, if someone asks me for a quote for their book I read the whole of their book and if I'm interviewing someone more often than not not always but as long as I've got time I will make time I will read the whole of that book but when I'm reading the rest of the time I'm very scattergun I I start a book and then it leads to something else it leads to something else yeah. it leads to something else and when I actually said about I there's loads of books I haven't finished all around all around this this yeah. ridiculous room that I'm in you know you you've seen it from the you know just preposterous yeah. kind of thing <laughs> all all around there are unfinished books Mm-hmm. I've got ideas from them. It's not as if yeah. I, by the act of completing, I, do, I, I go, oh, I've got a lovely thing out of that, and I found a lovely thing in that book, and and that book was really useful as well. And then, mm-hmm. and and a lot of them I will eventually finish, but it does seem, yeah, you, no, just yeah. keep, and that must really put people off reading when they just go, oh, yeah. if I start this, I've got to finish it. Yeah, and as well with, with especially in schools, they come in and they've been at primary school and they've been they've gone through reading schemes, and you have to go through the reading scheme. I, I told you at David's the other day, we had a boy come in and he was absolutely vehemently a non-reader. Don't like reading. Boring, 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 boring. So I spoke to him. Turned out he'd just been made to read boring books. So I sent him away with 1984 and he was, he was away. He hasn't stopped reading since. Brilliant. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. We're also yeah. joined now by Louis Stoll as well, who, uh, as, as authors will find out sometimes with me, if they buy my book when I'm in a bookshop, I buy theirs. It just feels unfair not to. We we met in uh, the lovely Stoke Newington bookshop on Sunday, and I've started uh, her book Otherland, um, which we were talking about fairies before. Actually, we were talking about getting boys into fairy stories as well. Um, and uh, so, can I ask you first of all, what was your experience of, of of libraries when you were growing up? Did you have library experiences? Yeah. So I remember my local library, which actually this wasn't the nearest to my house, but it was the one we went to a lot, which is in Richmond, because I grew up in southwest London. And the children's library was through a kind of weird passageway. So you had to go through the adult library and then over, I think it was over a bridge because it was basically the children's library was in a house next to the library. So it felt like a secret passage. And, And I don't know if I sort of was convinced that no one else knew about it, but it definitely felt quite special in that way. Um, that forbidden element. I was listening to the conversation earlier talking about banned books and it's kind of a similar feeling of like, oh, I don't think I'm supposed to be in here. Um, yeah, it's a bit naughty. Yeah, exactly. Naughty down, <laughs> down the wrong passage, uh, yeah. you know, sneaking off. Well, that's um, what Julie was saying about about the fact that there were two in her library. There were two separate ones. So eventually, there was a huge door. That one day they would go. Now you're of an age where we can change <laughs> your library cards. No longer the light green library card. These are, and, and all of that. That that kind of as you said. I mean, I think that is why the TV series Book Tower was so popular as well. Mm. Was because it was a strange world. Come up, so, you know. First of all, especially with someone as eccentric as Tom Baker initially yeah. drawing <laughs> us into yeah. to the, the Book Tower. Yeah, and I think one of the things that very much helped me love libraries was the freeness of it. Because I'm just thinking about, I was very into comics as a teenager and, and as a kid. And basically as a kid, I read all my all my dad's 2000 ADs. So I kind of, obviously that was all free, um, or at least as, I was, as far as I was concerned. But then, you know, I'd run out of that eventually and then realised that the library has loads of comics, um, which is incredible because you read a comic so quickly and it's kind of, whatever, nine quid which, you know, on teenage pocket money isn't going to get you many comics. Um, but actually, they have, they have some amazing collections. And sometimes it's a bit hit and miss what they actually have. But um, 
but I was able to kind of go all the way through Hellblazer, for instance. Um, and yeah, so it was kind of, it just felt a bit cheeky. Again, it was that kind of feeling of like, yeah. wow, I can have all this whenever I want. Yeah. Oh, that's what I was going to ask about in the school library. What about Adventure Time? Or is that oh. gone by then? Now, Adventure Time, is that's that's not around anymore so much. I love Adventure Time. You mean you mean as in the, 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 the series? Yeah, the cartoon, the comic yeah, the book cartoon, series, which is which is just properly weird in the best fantastic. sense of being able to get away with things that you would imagine, yeah. and I think has huge influence on on what are more adult, you know, things like um, what's it, Rick and Morty and stuff like yes, that, feels absolutely. very much of a same kind of world. Yeah, it's no, it, nobody ever really talks about that anymore. They really nobody should. Really I mean, is. I think another well, issue is fantastic. It's got some of the most iconic memes. Yes, like yes, it really has. Skin. It really has. Um, <laughs> the well, actually, the really... I, I do have quite a few of the comics, and I definitely have like lent those to kids before, and yeah. they really enjoyed them. And it's it's sort of like it does operate in this very interesting space between adult and child. Uh, I mm. mean, there's a lot of kind of talk of, in comics of being kind of all ages, and you're never really sure if it's supposed to be for grown ups or not. But it doesn't really mm. matter. Who cares? You can yeah. read the words on the page, and you can look at the pictures and interpret them. Then <laughs> it's for, it's for you. Yeah. Julia, I'm going to say we're going to swap over now. Yeah, um, that's cool. Thank you so much for joining us, and oh, thank you for uh, me. and I'm really glad that we we'll have to do more librarian ones more often. But oh, it yeah. was it was absolutely great. Um, and uh, and everyone, yeah, if you haven't got a library card, go and get a library card. Oh, it's it's worth, it really they are still wonderful, and I think sometimes people just, uh, just they just forget. And, and if there you've is got a school librarian, go and talk to them. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, find it. Find out what the books are as well. You know, really mm. find out what your children are in, interested in as well, um, and uh, and why? Because there's there's such a variety out there now, mm. and it and it's so spectacular. Hello, sorry to disturb the conversation. Just to say, you are listening to the abridged version of Josie and Robin's book shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version, then you can support us via Patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle tattle that dropped out of our mouth. So I'm going to now ask about. So you started off by writing about space, didn't you, Louis? And and, and then, then you kind of you've you've gone off. So, so tell me about how when you first started wanting to write, and and exactly what kind of audience you initially thought this is where I want to go for. So when I first started to write, my audience was my mum and dad. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but shooting forward a bit later, I, I remember writing a book. Um, that never got published in that form immediately after university because I'd seen this lecture by a woman called Diane Perkis who writes about the kind of macabre side of fairy tales um, and well sorry fa- stories about fairies rather than fairy tales and and it really I really kind of got into it because the idea of you know fairies being representatives of the liminal and of death and of all the things you don't want to talk about like children going missing um, so that very much stuck with me so I started writing this book that was about um about fairies and vampires and stuff. And uh, so I must've been about 21 then, wrote, wrote the whole thing, didn't go anywhere. <laughs> um, wrote another one, that didn't go anywhere. Wrote another one, that didn't go anywhere. And then eventually, um, but in, sorry, that was all my kind of novel stuff. But in the meantime, I was writing nonfiction. Um, so I was writing books for Usborne about space and coding I did once, I had to teach myself Python. Um, which was quite a brain exercise, especially because it turns out everyone on Stack Exchange is horrible because <laughs> they're, they're, all they want to do is tell you you've asked the wrong question. <laughs> I'm like, I just want to understand something, please. Um, but, but it was fascinating because it was like rewiring your brain in a new way, um, but also interesting seeing how much coding is like storytelling. So it's all about kind of, you know, what happens if this happens, then this happens. Um, you know how how one thing causes another and also thinking about the possibilities that if something else happened what would happen then Um, and so I managed to do one of those kind of very very basic text adventures as a as a computer program um, with you know you knock on the door of the dungeon a giant enters all that kind of stuff you know which were kind of the first computer games I played so it felt like a return to form but um but actually just because python doesn't do very much like that it's not really for that it's just to appeal to children you've got to kind of bend it a bit because it's more for databases which is not an eight-year-old stream um but yeah i ended up writing a lot about space so i did one about how to be an astronaut which was kind of tied in with tim peak going into space in 2015 
Um, and I spent a lot of events saying he wasn't actually the first Brit in space. That was Helen Sharman. He was just the first government sanctioned one. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, that's fascinating because it was it was it required learning all about the exact processes of training and the vomit comet and um, the fact that they kind of get stranded in Siberia to you know survive in the wild as you know because if you did crash land your spaceship, you may end up in hostile territory mm. fighting bears. Um, and I feel like there was a Russian cosmonaut who did actually. I, I can't remember what happened then though. Um, that's the thing with writing nonfiction. You do all this research, you write the book, and then five years later you've forgotten it all. <laughs> Except Oh, I wish I wish I had a whole five years when I've been working on <laughs> stuff. It's, it's not that but that do you remember I mean when you were a kid, did you read because I I've I just wrote the introduction for the Osborne Book of Monsters because for my oh, generation amazing. there was monsters, UFOs, uh, I've somewhere got the haunted house one with Bawley Rectory. There's uh um and they've all come back out now again because part of this thing of the haunted generation, which mm. which which people of my generation are I'd like to buy them again and force them on my children whether yeah. they want them or not. Um and I I was, I was born I really always had a love for as well as those ones that are the fantastic you know the, the ones about ancient Greece and stuff that's mm. beautiful so did, were they ever part of your childhood yes absolutely so I had um the Norse mythology one um and a Greek mythology one um, oh that's a great one yeah, yeah I yeah Greek one was by a woman called Anne Millard who is still an expert like when I left working there anyway was still an expert at Osborne so you'd have these long rambling phone calls about you know mythology or history you know if I'm doing a book about ancient Egypt and need to know what happens when they you know with their makeup or you know how they how they bathe she just know it all um but also had some very strong views about kind of which pharaohs were best <laughs> um and uh yeah so I had the, the, those kind of mythology ones which were they weren't done as narratives it was more kind of like double page spread about Theseus and then you know, here's a small narrative with lots of like character boxes and stuff. And I always really like that about nonfiction where it's not necessarily just reading a whole block of text. It's, you know, you're kind of jumping around and, and you know, reading a bit of a kind of snippet here, snippet there. I guess it's more like a magazine for children. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that, 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 and that still works for me, that system. Yeah. The, um, and I was, I was wondering about when you started then writing fiction, what did you need what do you think you needed to learn in terms of thinking about how to write because it's not as if it's not as if children's writing is childish if no. you see what i mean that's that, that that's not you know i whenever i read children's books i think you all of the good ones that my son's read and that i read are they're never patronizing and they're never you know you you never feel as if someone has sat there going this is what children need now in yeah. that kind of slightly you know patriarchal way it, the, the stories so i wonder, i wonder it must be quite a hard i don't want to call it a, a, a trick but that, that hard skill to initially work out right this is the window of age that I think we'll probably be reading this. And this yeah. is how I need to frame it. So that was interesting working at Osborne because we did a lot of like graded readers there. Um, so we did this series called Young Readers, which are like retellings of fairy tales and stuff. Um, and we didn't necessarily have like a list of words that you can and can't use for that age. But by writing a lot of those at different levels, you start realizing the kind of language ability at different ages. I mean, obviously very generalized, but um and I think that kind of practice gets you in the mode for it. So mm -hmm. by the time I was kind of writing fiction, um, I had quite a firm grasp on those age bands, but then also had a lot more freedom to ignore them. Um, so I think basically just treating your reader like they are a reader, they want to be interested and amused and moved and just bear in mind that sometimes you can't use certain references because they won't that you know they weren't alive when they happened <laughs> mm. um although some weirdly some things become retro like friends apparently kids are really into friends it seems weird but um yeah my son was for a while but then eventually just we decided not we but he just was like yeah that's enough of that now yeah <laughs> brooklyn 99 was was so there we go that, that yeah that's i mean that's much better <laughs> i'd never asked because i never watched friends and i thought oh it's fine it's just and i didn't realize how it's just entirely about sex that's all it's about really yeah. it's about sex and it's very offensive in terms of like transphobia and sexism and fat phobia or everything you could not really want very much in a tv show for kids <laughs> it is it yeah. is quite disturbing well maybe actually disturbing is not necessarily the right but because I suppose we're we used to being we watch things that are from before our time mm. um we 
understand, you know, some of the sitcoms of the 70s or whatever. Or, or, yeah, yeah. And you kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah. No, I understand that. But when you then go, oh, we lived through this. Oh, we laughed at that. Oh, and that—that's yeah. when I think, and that—that's when, you, of course, you get some people who react really viciously against it, are yeah. furious about the fact that uh, I mean, it's just all a bit of fun, isn't it? And you—you you get yeah. you get a lot of people that, of course, when they hit middle age, forget that. Um, yes, you aren't meant to understand younger people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, if you are really genuinely still thinking that you've got your finger on the pulse and it's the young people that are the problem, yeah. then you may well not be moving in, in the right direction. And yeah. that does, and that does. But but I I've been quite surprised by very often not things that I watch, but things that I knew were at the time and gone to and gone as exactly as you said. Oh, this is more problematic than I thought. Even even yeah. some comedy from this century. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, definitely stuff I watched in the nineties. Probably quite a lot of stuff I watched in the early two thousands. Actually, you know, it's sort of. Um, I feel like kind of social evolution is always happening and we often don't understand things at the time and then actually get a new perspective on them. Um, but some things I think actually, sometimes things for children last longer because um, I don't know why, maybe it's just that children don't change that much. But um, I mean, there's definitely stuff in children, old children's books that's super dodge, but, um, but I think in terms of what children are interested in, it doesn't change that much. Um, so, um, I definitely really rate things like Diana Wynne-Jones, um, mm. and I think they've aged very well, um, or E. Nesbitt, weirdly, like from whatever, Edwardian times, um, mm. has an oddly modern sensibility in some ways because it's got banter, and I think that kind of witty back and forth, um, feels very modern, um, and I think, I'm not going to say this is holding up very well in terms of gender or anything, but just William, um, the kind of humor of that is still spot on because um, it manages to be somewhere in the very, somewhere in the realm of satire, but, um, but still very kid accessible. You know, it has um, a bit where he defines political parties. I don't know if you, did you read just William? No, I haven't read them for years and years and years and I only read a few. So there's, um, I forget which one it's in, but he, um, he says that there are, different political parties. So there's the conservatives who want to make everything better by keeping it the same. Um, and then there's the liberals, which you know, liberals, whatever, who want to make things better by sort of keeping them same, sort of changing them. Um, then labor wants to change things, like make things better by taking everyone's money off of them. And communists want to make everything better by taking everyone's money off of them and then killing them. <laughs> and, um, and that, yeah. That always, I mean, obviously it's not accurate, but it sort of, it still like resonates in terms mm. of those kind of generalities. Um, so I think, yeah, but I mean, for me, kind of humour in children's books is always key. And I mean, you know, I've definitely enjoyed some very serious children's books, but really I kind of, I'm always looking for that humour. Or humour and or weirdness. Because thinking about one Osborne book that I really loved was um, sort of in the same series as the monster ones, but the Osborne book of the future. Well, um, it's the one that I most, I regret. I saw it in an Oxfam in Edinburgh. Even then it was about a hundred quid or something. It was mm. a very, and, and I should have just gone, you got paid for that gig. This is where the money yeah. goes. Because <laughs> that, that's one. Have you got a copy of that one then? I don't, but there was one in the Osborne office. I, I seem to remember. I was almost going to demand, because obviously I wrote the foreword for their, for their book, uh, yeah. for, for uh, nothing. But I was almost going to go, there is one fee. You must go into the cellar. <laughs> we're never giving that away. If we yeah. ever find out you've got through the laser beams that protect our Osborne <laughs> book of the future and our futuristic robots that also protect the Osborne book of the future. Yeah. We I know think it's been after Osborne's that. Osborne's office, which was right at the top of the building like some kind of you know castle um but yeah i think those that because that one was done by a futurologist um which is apparently a job and you know in the set i think it was the late 70s and some of the things were fantastically accurate like there was this one bit that basically was a picture of an apple watch um like it had a few aerials sticking out of it but it was basically an apple watch and um, various kind of eco stuff was was there, and then other things were just completely random. And yeah, we didn't go that way. But um, but yeah, it's almost what they got wrong is as interesting as what they got right. See, it's weird. Is it? I, I don't know why that one is so expensive compared to pretty much all the others. You know, some of the horror ones used to be a bit. Yeah, yeah, it must have not had a very long print run. That's kind of yeah. because the one that I love on that, and I was a bit annoyed. Latitude Festival. I really wanted to do this because on the twentieth, we were there twentieth of July two thousand and nineteen. 
And there's a book by Arthur C. Clarke called that because that was 50 years after uh, Neil Armstrong stood on the moon. Right. And so it was Arthur C. Clarke's imagining what... The, and, and I said, this is the only ever time we can do this directly yeah. on the 50th, you know, of, 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 and about what Arthur C. Clarke, and much like the Osborne Book of the Future, some of it is very accurate, and then some of it is like kind of, oh, the hopes. Yeah. Oh, the hopes of the moon bases and all of those yeah. other things. Now, on fairies, because we should talk about other land as well, yes. before we get on to other land, do you know a book called The Good Fairies of New York by Martin Miller? I don't, but I'm immediately writing it down. I love that book. Martin Miller, who also, who I think has written quite a bit of kind of YA since then and stuff like that, but he, he wrote a brilliant book called Lux the Poet, set during the Brixton riots. Hmm. He wrote a fantastic book called uh, Milk Sulfate and Albie Starvation, in which Albie Starvation, who's an enormous fan of the band The Fool, believes that he's being poisoned by the milk marketing board. Amazing. Um, and The Good Fairies of New York, which is a, uh, they're just really great little kind of, Countercultural books. It's about mm. two, two fairies that that get really drunk uh, <laughs> one night and and wake up and find that they've somehow got picked up by a wind and blown to New York and they yeah. have to try and help two people. And, and it also has a lovely one of those lovely things where something is a minor part of the story, but at the same time means that you find out because one of the characters has Crohn's disease. Mm. And this was thirty whatever years ago being being written about and it just just placing that in a story but it's not a story about Crohn's disease but mm. Crohn's disease and it, and it has but he's but also his mixture of pop culture stuff and things like that yeah mm. uh Lux the Poet is 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 absolutely fantastic um well yeah Good Fairies in New York I really that's recommend great. it I mean it's, that sounds very much like it could be out of Hellblazer actually so I've, I've... yeah yeah I think I think because <laughs> he, he would he'd be writing late 80s early 90s yeah, yeah a lot of the kind of things that would be on the comic book shelves as well yeah so your but but let's talk about Otherland. So this is you know tell us a little bit about the kind of the changeling mythology and and where this idea came from. So this idea uh, was actually the the book that I started when I was twenty one was a version of this book. It just happened to have none of the same characters or plot, um, but it was effectively in the same world because I think that idea of secondary worlds in a kind of Narnia way has always fascinated me. Um, and the idea that just out of the corner of your eye, there could be something that could, you know, kind of suck you into their vortex, you know, the kind of, especially like through mirrors and things, which is how people travel to other land. Um, so I, I mean, I built this world well beyond fairyland. So it's kind of, I've got a, a realm where the gods live and a realm where the vampires live and a realm that's basically as you get further and further from where the mortals live things get weirder and there's a place where basically things are so weird that if a mortal traveled there they'd be dri driven insane just by being there um whereas things like fairyland and the vamp uh, the old country where the vampires live are very much you know they're, they're quite predatory on us so they have to be close to us and but that also means they reflect us so um i quite liked exploring kind of how fairies are different and the same as us so you know they do actually share a lot of our flaws with some more of their own but also there's other things that they're you know they're not as bad as us but you know pollution and things um but yeah it's kind of got the changing myth which i think for me was the way it kind of came into my life as a reader was through um outside over there which is um, a Morris Sendak, not one of his very famous ones, about a changeling. Um, and it's quite disturbing. And I definitely, you know, I wouldn't say pinched, but <laughs> uh, accessed some of the imagery through there. Um, and so that, and then watching Labyrinth growing up, um, and the idea of like fairies, goblins, all of the, the other basically being in my brain, all sort of the same thing. It's all just something that we're projecting. Um, so if there's something we're scared of, we project an image into the dark and say, it's that happened because of the vampires or that happened because of the fairies when actually it's just, it's because of us. So um, yeah, so I've created this very elaborate mythology but only go into very small amounts of it in the book. Um, I think it might actually say vampires on the back blurb and there's no vampires that actually appear anywhere in the book <laughs> but they're there in the world yeah gods they're, vampires they're and fairies so you've got either side you're fine yeah <laughs> that's, that's the main thing and uh in gods in terms of gods i've got um tony Toastepson. so he's the patron well i was going to say the patron saint but that's 
slightly a giveaway. He's the God of lost things, but he's actually, I guess in my head, a um, got Catholic family, uh, St. Anthony, so mm. who is patron saint of lost, lost things. Um, but I like this idea that we've misunderstood gods and we've interpreted them through our lens. So basically the gods are just their own kind of people. Um, so Tony is responsible for finding all the lost things in the world and sort of sending them back to their owners if they're meant to get them back or something's permanently lost. He's got this massive warehouse kind of near fairyland where he stores it all. Um, and I don't generally write about my life, but this part is, which is basically, he has my storage system, which is basically everything's in a pile and he knows where it is, <laughs> but it looks like it's just a big pile. So it's, it's sort of a quest narrative come slash buddy comedy. Um, you know, what is it called? Odd Cops? What do you call it when yeah, it's Yeah, like, I know. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, uh, um, yeah. Odd, it's basically Odd Couple, isn't it? Odd Couple. Yeah, Odd Couple, yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. The um, odd cops I like though. That's maybe your next <laughs> book. So, do do you ever have, do you have an imagined reader? I don't mean as in a Broadway. I mean, do you ever? Is it you? Do you see you sat reading this book when you were maybe ten years old, uh, or do you every now and again imagine sometimes because of some of the things you're you're hopefully getting across as well as just writing, you know, a great story. As you said, there are certain things which many children's books are also an in, in the same way that Doctor Who, of course, was an introduction to so many senses of kind of otherness for a mm. lot of people. And do you sometimes have a little picture of, of maybe some, some hopes or what kind of person might be going, oh, good, this story is the story that's now sticking to me and giving me something extra for my yeah. life? I guess not a very clear picture of who they might be, but the general weird kids, <laughs> it's, it's all for them. So just anyone who's ever felt like they've not fitted in or there's something a bit unusual about them. And I suppose kind of celebrating that oddness and, um, you know, eccentric children, they're, they're the best. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening to our, our school library special. Otherland uh, by Louis Stoll is out now and uh, there are no vampires in it. There are hints of vampires. Let's get that out of the way. But let's remember there are plenty of gods and fairies. And uh, thank you uh, also to uh, Julie Bohr as well for joining us. And thank you to our producer, Trent Burton. And we'll be back very soon. Hopefully you'll hear from us again next week. Bye-bye. Thanks very much for listening. Otherland is out now. Importance of being interested, Robin's new book is out now too. You can get signed copies of that from the Cosmic Shambles bookshop, cosmicshambles.com slash bookshop rate like subscribe five stars on amazon podcast spotify acast wherever you listen to the show back next week with another new episode sign up at patreon.com slash bookshambles to hear an extended edition of that episode next week's episode this episode and all of the other episodes have a great week take care stay safe and we will see you soon bye for now this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Yeah.